0: All the girls are complicated. Everyone.
1: Episode 92 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Ailea Danner Grubbs and new panelist Jessica Harden. Two weeks ago in episode 90, we had a conversation about scientific and biblical principles that should guide us in making healthcare decisions. Today's episode is a continuation of that discussion. Last time on uh, our discussion of making healthcare and, and health related decisions, we covered some good scientific principles and, and theological principles that would guide us through the decision making um and uh so today we're going to be walking through two specific examples uh, of areas where we might need to make these decisions um our first uh, area we're going to discuss is essential oils and then we'll we'll dive into a discussion of vaccines uh, but first um I Ilea, can you talk to us a little bit about uh essential oils and um and some some of uh, how we can think about the decision, whether to use them, how to use them, uh, in light of the scientific and theological principles that we talked
2: about last time. Sure. To start out, um, it's important to define a few categories of essential oil use because essential oils has become such a huge industry with a broad range of uses and methods, and people tend to overgeneralize when they talk about essential oils, Um, When they say it in a general sense, um, you're not really sure what they mean, but there's a big distinction um, between Uh, Three different categories that I'm breaking it down into, um, oils in aromatherapy use, environmental use, and topical or internal uses. Okay, so aromatherapy uses are probably the most common. This is the idea that smelling lavender might help you get to sleep or that eucalyptus and Vicks VapoRub will open up your sinuses. Uh, A lot of users put oils in vaporizers or diffusers um, or use them in body care products for aromatherapy. Typically, people use uh, aromatherapy to alter moods, relieve stress or anxiety. Um, they can help with symptomatic issues like headaches and colds. Even the Mayo Clinic uh, has started using them to help with symptoms like nausea um, in their patients when they come out of um, surgery. And then uh, environmental use is a term that I'm using. I don't know if that's a common term, but I'm using it to describe using essential oils to uh, directly affect or alter your environment Uh, This might be using certain oils in your cleaning products to kill bacteria, um, to purge germs from the air, to sterilize utensils, repel bugs, etc. This is sometimes effective, like I mentioned in the other podcast, I use uh, tea tree oil in my homemade cleaning spray. Um, Some of these practices run the risk of conflating results of in vitro tests, like uh, tea tree oil can kill bacteria in a petri dish, so therefore... Uh, If you diffuse it into the air, it will keep your home completely bacteria-free and and kind of going out of the realm of of scientific practice there. Um, And then the third group is topical or internal uses, and these are by far the most dangerous and controversial. Um, While almost all licensed aromatherapists will warn against ingestion and undiluted topical application, many of the newer and less trained sellers are teaching the exact opposite. Practices such as uh, adding oils directly to baths and drinking water without an emulsifying agent where they basically are just floating on the surface of the water undiluted. Um, Raindrop therapy where oils are dropped directly um, and undiluted onto a patient's spine, Um, putting oils under the tongue or in capsules to swallow. Uh, These can lead to burns, sensitizations, allergic reactions, and even illness. Um, Once the body is sensitized, um, once you have an allergic reaction to a substance, that reaction is permanent. And lifelong so this is something that even if you use an oil undiluted for a long time once you develop that sensitization there's no going back Um, and it's worth noting that a few years ago in 2014 the fda issued cease and desist notices to two of the biggest essential oil companies um, for some of these uses um, for false claims about the medical uses of their products things like taking them internally Um, And as far as I know, the companies themselves complied, but because they're both multi-level marketing companies, they have consultants down the line who can still, they have a lot of freedom to give testimonials and how they choose to market the products themselves. Uh, So I just want to go over those categories first, because I think it's important to distinguish between responsible practices, um, practices that have been around for a very long time, um, and dangerous ones, um, and to show that the idea of essential oils is not a simple yes or no question. This isn't something where we can just say, um, no, throw them all out. They're all bogus or embrace everything that everybody claims that they can do about them either. Um, So the first piece that I looked at was a podcast called Science Versus, And this particular episode, uh, Season 5, Episode 2, is called Essential Oils, Science, or Snake Oil. The show is hosted by an Australian science journalist named Wendy Wendy Zuckerman, and the basis of the show is taking on fads, myths, pop culture, uh, any trending or current topic, and looking at the actual science behind it. Uh, In this episode, she and her producer talk to aromatherapists, psychologists, cognitive neuroscientists, um, salespeople, to get to the bottom of the claims about essential oils. I definitely recommend listening to this podcast. It's funny, it's fast-paced, and it's presented in layperson's terms without coming across as simplistic or missing any of the actual scientific data. Um, A couple of really interesting things that she finds is that the first... First of all, the big claims, the claims that you've heard about essential oils curing cancer or um, you know, preventing Ebola, things like that, are pretty much completely unfounded. Um, any, any tests that have been done that have shown that have not been reproducible, as you were talking about before, Jessica, um, many of them have been found to be falsified or to be uh, inadequate test samples, that kind of thing. Um, There are a few studies that they highlighted that showed some efficacy of some essential oils on a much smaller scale, but even that was really not much. Um, One study tested whether rosemary could help improve memory, uh, which is a common claim, uh, has been since the Roman Empire, actually, or even before that. Um, They gave people a list of random words to memorize and uh, had some of them smell rosemary oil while they were trying to memorize it, and then some of them didn't, and then they tested them several minutes later. Um, and the people who smelled the rosemary while they were memorizing, the studies showed that they did memorize more words than the people who didn't. But at the end of this conversation about these studies, um, the the head of the trial admits that the average improvement was less than one word more than the average control group. So... You know, and it was two studies that were relatively small samples, so um, if you hear that touted as an actual effect, I still feel kind of skeptical about the, the efficacy of that. Um, the, interest, the most interesting test to me was one where they diffused lavender for different subjects individually, and they told some of them, this is a smell that people often find energizing. And then another group, they told them, this is a smell that people often find relaxing. And they monitored their vital signs, and the group who were told that it was energizing displayed increased heart rate and even perspiration, while the ones who were told it was relaxing showed a decreased heart rate and decreased breathing rate. Um, so their conclusion was basically that essential oils work the way you're told they work. It's basically a placebo. Um, they interviewed the cognitive neuroscientist who special um, – she's written a book about um, the effect of memory and smell, and how a lot of the uh, the power of aromatherapy, the power of smells, is directly tied to our memory, and that includes what people tell us about um, about a smell. she She gives the example of her mother telling her one time that a certain smell was lovely that she, that she liked that smell. And it was only years later that she realized that it was the smell of skunk. And, but for all of those years, she had loved that smell because her mother had told her that was a lovely smell. And then and, and these kids started making fun of her because she was um, smelling skunk and saying, oh, I love that smell. And, uh, but so the, the conclusion was that, that basically most aromatherapy oils work as placebos, but that's not to say they don't work. Because placebo effect is very powerful. And honestly, there have been times when I was perfectly okay with the placebo if it got rid of my headache or if it got rid of my uh, my problem. Um, but there's no consistent scientific basis to back up the vast claims that essential oil companies are making about curing everything from ADHD to Ebola to healing broken bones to cancer um, to you know headaches, all of these things. Um, and I've seen all of those claims personally from uh, people that have tried to sell me essential oils, Uh, but I really enjoy this podcast. It it tried to be fair-minded and it really looked at the facts. Uh, It had over a hundred citations to back it up. So if you want some light reading on the subject, you can make your way through some of those sources. Did did any of y'all want to add to that um, discussion about that podcast?
0: I would just uh, tag on and say, I wouldn't underestimate the value of a solid placebo effect. And I thought they did a pretty good job of saying like, no, this is actually, this is a thing. Um, Right. I did think it was interesting. So at the very end, the host and they played it up. I think this is one of I think this is one of the best produced podcasts that I've listened to in a while. It's just very entertaining and easy to listen to. But the host Wendy, um, she suddenly it's revealed that the co-host actually uses essential oils and that she diffuses them. And Wendy kind of gets all worked up and she's like, "But doesn't it bother you that they're?" They're like playing in our turf. They're like making claims that science and, and it's not there. And uh, and she kind of plays it up. And then, you know, her co-host is like, you know, it sounds like you need, you need a bath with some lavender in it. <laughs> I thought that was not just funny, but I do think there is a little bit there where sometimes I feel like the science side of things gets a little annoyed that um, that there might be something else kind of trying to come in and, and make claims on uh yeah. Almost pseudoscientific claims, I think, is is the argument that they had. But um, the strength of reaction is something that I have actually seen other mm-hmm. science people facing. But I think there's a lot to be said for. I wouldn't underestimate the value of a good placebo. Like I'm with you. Hey, if it makes my headache go away and it means I'm not taking Advil, then that's not something to turn your nose up at.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons I wanted to distinguish between different usages of it because. Like I said, you, you can't throw them all out as, oh, well, they're all useless because, yeah. you know, v- VIX has been around a long time. And, you know, if I have a sinus infection, you know, some eucalyptus and some tea tree oil and some steamy water does make my sinuses feel better. So if that's placebo, I'm OK. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the brain is powerful. Yeah. And, and there are lots of studies that show that even when people know that it is a placebo, it still can have an effect.
0: Right. I think one other um, point, so listening to the podcast, the one um, beef I might have with them is that they, I think when you look at the scientific literature, yes, there is a good amount out there on essential oils and no, there haven't been any studies that have shown like, yes, exactly, this works, but it's really hard to prove a negative. And so given that the world is vast and large and essential oils are a really broad group, you know, it's entirely possible that out there there is some clinical application that ends up being understood later and that we don't know. Um, now, that is, again, not to say that I think that they cure any of these things, but more just a reminder, a helpful reminder that being an equal opportunity skeptic, I think, should mean that you also say, Meh, you know, maybe actually, maybe in some application there is a way. I think they did reference that peppermint oil, ingested peppermint oil, didn't it reduce nausea? Yes. Um, but I think, you know, maybe there are other things that are like that that are out there and we just don't know them. But in the meantime, if someone has found a way, a safe way for a placebo to make them feel better and to make life more comfortable, um, then I think that's a perfectly fine thing. Alexis, did you have anything to add? Um,
1: no, I, I think that y'all have, have covered it um, pretty well. And, and I also was, was affected by the the explanation that a placebo effect is not the same thing as mistakenly thinking that something helped you when it didn't um like you said with even with the lavender study uh there were biological indications right that that were uh that were ob- observable right it wasn't just that they reported afterwards oh yeah i feel more relaxed or oh yeah i feel more energized like sweating and pulse elevation like the your body like you said the mind is powerful and your body is responding to that and hey if i can trick my mind into affecting my symptoms i'm with y'all I am on board with that. Um, And so, yeah, the the placebo effect is not the same thing as just sort of being diluted, if that makes sense. Like, I think it's helpful to tell Mm -hmm. people your body might actually be doing some of this, but it's not necessarily because of the the chemical substance that you're dealing with. It's because of your your body responding to the power of your mind to deal with this. Um, And so it doesn't mean you're not experiencing relief. It's just talking about what the ultimate cause of that relief is.
2: So, Yes, Absolutely. So the second article that I read um, speaks to kind of some of the other uses that that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, This was a New York Times article called Worshipping the False Idol of Wellness by Dr. Jen Gunter. Uh, She's a practicing OBGYN in California. And she's really speaking to the whole idea of the wellness culture. She describes the what she calls the wellness industrial complex as a false antidote to the fear of life and death that comes with an intoxicating confidence in theater that science can only aspire to achieve. And I thought that was especially relevant uh, considering what you were saying, Jessica, about the need for skepticism in scientific approaches, whereas the wellness industry comes in with very little skepticism of itself. Um, and a, a lot of bold claims and a lot of, um, almost too good. Well, some, a lot of them are too good to be true claims. Um, but what I really thought was interesting about this article is her observation that wellness has become a kind of religion, um, with sacred acts, rituals, denominations, obsessions with purity. Um, and in Christian circles, the two are especially fused together when it comes to essential oils. There, there are There's actually a book called Essential Oils of the Bible. There are several in this category, but um, this is the most popular one um, that teaches that uh, the anointings that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament with oil, uh, were a spiritual use of essential oils. And it uses the verse in Revelations 22 that says, The leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations to prove that essential oils are God's gift and intent for us to use. Um, The description in the book, the description of the book on the back of the book says, And I quote, uh, One way of connecting to our spiritual selves or to a higher power is through an essential oils practice and by making their soothing and sanctifying properties a part of daily routine. It goes on uh, in the description to say essential oils of the Bible is written at the intersection of science and spirituality, allowing the benefits of both to infuse your spiritual essential oils practice. So if Dr. Gunther is seeing religious underpinnings in the secular wellness movement, here we see they're even much more pronounced and overt in the Christian world. Um, and, of course, in keeping with the religious aspects, uh, any worship of, of any religion, any, the worship of wellness is also going to require offerings. Um, Grandview Research puts the essential oil industry value at around $6.63 billion a year and growing. Um, and I think that's important to highlight because most of the claims about the effectiveness, the use, the purity, the quality of these essential oils um that go beyond basic aromatherapy use, like we were talking about, um, come from people who have the most to gain by selling more of them. Um, if you only diffuse a few drops at a time, that tiny vial of oil is going to last you months, even years. Um, but if you're also being told to ingest them in daily pills, put them in your food and water, bathe with them, use them undiluted so you're using more of it, uh, wear it in your jewelry, clean your house with it, these are all claims that I've seen people make, um, you're going to start using a lot more of them and then, of course, you're going to be buying a lot more of them. Uh, now, Dr. Guther's biggest concern uh, in this article is that this obsession with wellness is not just a waste of money. It's not just harmless palliative care. Um, these sellers and advocates for these products are actively stoking fear of the established scientific medical community and providing misinformation uh, through medical conspiracy theories like Big Pharma is suppressing natural cures like essential oils or vaccines cause autism. Um, these lead to what she sees in her practice as a delay or rejection of life-saving treatments under the belief that something like essential oils is just as good or better, um, which takes us back to my original three categories because while well, there's nothing wrong with you know, using aromatherapy to relax or cleaning your toilet with tea tree oil, when a sales representative with no medical background in this area is trying to give you medical advice, not only is that illegal, but it, it can be very dangerous. Um, And Jessica, back to your Atlantic article, she concludes that part of this problem is a failing in the medical community to um, accurately communicate information, to accurately explain what a reversal or a change in policy means um, so that we don't get that kind of reversal fatigue that that leads to throwing up our hands and giving up on medicine in general because, oh, what do they know? They change every couple of years. I have friends that commonly say, well, you know, they are just practicing medicine. They don't actually know much, you know. (laughs) Um, And they say that with seriousness, by the way. Um, But um, clever, though, practicing medicine. Yes. But uh, what did you all think about that article? I mean, I I think I
1: really appreciated what you said about – you know, the, the real consequences of, of some of the, the claims, the unsubstantiated claims. Um, and it, it sort of relates back to what we were talking about. And it, it affects, I think, what, it'll, what we'll see, and I think we'll, we'll see this pop up in, in our discussion in a minute with vaccines, it doesn't just affect the substantive discussion of whether or not essential oils are effective for the particular use or, or whatever the other discussion is. It undermines our faith in the institutions and the practitioners. And so uh, what you then have is you are... You are undermining the mom who's going to the doctor, like her belief in what her doctor is telling her. And, and, and you are, like you said, with that, with that, that fatigue, like you're teaching them to just disregard, um whole swaths of, of medical advice that are not uncertain, um, and that, that should not be ignored. And I think it's important that you, you have that. You don't just have, you know, in this instance, you can't trust your doctor because they're just trying to sell you drugs and you should just use essential oils instead. Um, like you're not just affecting their view of this instance. Now you've told them that their doctor sometimes tells them things that are not true. Um, and, and, we need to be cautious about doing that because it has real effects on on people in the world, not just even in this issue when it and it can be very serious in these issues, but other issues as well. Um, uh, yeah, we just there are consequences to telling people to disregard experts like there. They're just there are real consequences to undermining not just the individual instance, but the system is that I'm not sure if I'm articulating that well, but um, that's one of the concerns I, I certainly would have.
0: Oh, that makes perfect sense. And I think what you're saying, Alexis, is not that we should blindly trust all experts and that um, anyone who's not an expert is not allowed to give us any advice that might provide us with, you know, some alleviation in this fallen world, alleviating suffering in this fallen world. I think what you're simply saying is that, you know, we should respect experts within their domain of knowledge and that it is really useful to do that. And whole sale, undercutting of that knowledge has negative ramifications. Um, I, I came across, I don't know, are you guys familiar with the daycare incident? Anybody? doesn't sound familiar. It. it does or no, it does? It does not. Okay. So there was an incident in a daycare where the children woke up from a nap uh, with their pupils dilated and the teachers began to feel unwell and they suspected it was a carbon monoxide leak, but it actually turned out to just be a buildup of essential oils in the air. So the teachers were diffusing them to help, they said they were diffusing them to help with like the poop smells, but then also to try and get rid of the, or combat the tons of viruses that, you know, float around small children as I'm sure we are all familiar. Um, But it was, I I think it's an interesting case because if you're going to argue that something will indeed have an impact on not just the poop smell, um, then you also have to acknowledge that it can have a downside. And I think sometimes when um, someone who is, pushing essential oils as an alternative to medicine, um, that they are making themselves aware of the risks that are present in medical treatments, because there are, because there are risks in everything, but maybe not as aware of the risks that could be present in um, either not seeking that treatment or in using an alternative treatment. And and I think that's kind of a false place to get into as well, because those things have um, effects as well.
2: That's a really good point. Dr. Gunther talks about that in her article that if it's powerful enough to help the body it's it's powerful enough to harm the body.
0: Yes. And that again gets back to our talk about not natural does not equal safe. Like ricin is natural and it is a poison and and you know botulism is also quite natural and but the botulism toxin if you don't just inject it in the right spot to get your wrinkles gone you would end up with paralysis and um, if you ingest it you'll have lots of very negative consequences so natural does not equal safe absolutely
1: so uh based on these these pieces discussing essential oils and what we've we've talked about um We've done this a little bit, but I want to make sure we're, we're explicit. What what kinds of information do we think is missing, or or is maybe not presented accurately? Um, so where where is this gonna? I guess putting on our, our sort of science lenses from from when Jessica talked about thinking about things scientifically. Um, how do we do that? W- what does that what does that do to our our thought process and our decision making process for essential oils?
2: I think from the. You have to look at it from both standpoints. The the naysayers of essential oils um, don't do enough of a nuanced approach. Um, they tend to throw, like I was saying, the baby out with the bathwater and just eschew them all. They're no good. They're just fake, but they're not acknowledging the, like we said, the studies that do show they have some effect. The studies that show that you know they have you know, palliative care, if nothing else, to, to help with minor suffering, um, but on the other side, like you were saying, Jessica, the, the proponents Tend to overlook the the dangers or the the severity of the you know, the the power that is in some of those. It's it's interesting because the same companies that tout the purity and the um the the high grade of their essential oils will say that that's what makes them safe to use undiluted or that undiluted or that's mm-hmm. what makes them safe to use um, internally. And to me, that's that's such a an uh like you can't have those two things both be true. If it's powerful and, and pure and the most t- you know, potent form of a, of a plant, then that means you should take more care with it. Not that, oh, it's right. fine if the kids get into the medicine cabinet, if it's full of essential oils, they're right. they're not going to have, you know, I, I've seen these people make these claims. And, and I would say, if you really think your product is as powerful as, it, as you say it is, then that's all the more reason to, to use it wisely and to use it
0: carefully.
1: Jessica, did you yeah. have thoughts on evaluating essential oils through that scientific lens?
0: Yes. Again, I mean, I agree with everything that um, that Ailea said. And I would also just say that we don't know what we don't know. And mm-hmm. so I think that cuts both ways. You know, if, for those who are naysayers of oils, um, you know, again maybe someday we will find that there is actually a very clinical therapeutic approach that we end up mainstreaming. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but um, I would also say on the flip side that the studies that are out there, I don't think that they support saying, uh, you know, that this can cure cancer or, and I think, um, I think your point is also very valid that just because tea tree oil can kill viruses and bacteria in, in, um, in a petri dish does not mean that when you spray it in the air that it's going to take care of things in the air. Um, Yeah, bleach kills it in a petri dish too. Yes. But But I'm not taking a pill of it. I'm not spraying it in the air. (laughs) Exactly. So I think, you know, it it sounds like throughout this discussion, we are encouraging people to have a lot of nuance, essentially, um, and to think well uh, about the scientific literature that's there and what might eventually be added. And you know, just to kind of wait and see and continue asking good questions. I think this is where as Christians, even though we acknowledge that our knowledge is limited and God's is not, um, we can still and we should still strive to improve our knowledge and expand what we know. And, but we should never delude ourselves into thinking that we've gotten all the answers. And I think that should give us a measure of grace and humility towards each other.
1: I think that that's cer- certainly true. Uh, and that leads into sort of that second question, then. Um, how how should we navigate this? How do we how do we have these conversations um, in a way that extends grace in a way that affirms truth in a way that that demonstrates humility? Um, have you guys had positive experiences having these kinds of conversations or, or dealing with others who've reached a different conclusion?
0: I actually have a really good friend who sells essential oils and is a big be- believer in them. Um, and she, I would say, is a pretty careful user. So uh, she'll talk about, you know, being very cautious about getting a certain type of oil on your hands or near your eyes or in any other sensitive spots and she and I will have great conversations. Um, And there's, you know, I think there's actually a lot of good conversations you can have um, about exploring things that are interesting and encouraging one another to go find good data and to dig into it and look in it. So I've actually, I think part of the positive of our conversation is probably due to the fact that my friend is gracious about how she Um, uses them and thoughtful and she's gracious with me knowing that I may differ with her in certain areas but I'm still you know willing to hear what she's saying and curious about why she thinks this or that and um, so that conversation's actually gone well and she has convinced me that lavender smells pretty good in my kids play-doh so small amounts small amounts people (laughs) I feel like I'm confessing that I'm using something (laughs) (laughs) well like I said I
2: use I use several you know I have a couple in my um, my pantry. But one thing that when I have these conversations, what were you going
0: to say? Oh, I was going to, I was going to confess something else. Um, (laughs) so a while back, um, a friend of mine actually looked at my skin and she's like, you should try. And she does not sell essential oils. And she's like, I've been trying this for my face and it's actually really worked. And so she got me to try her, whatever I ordered the same tea tree oil that she uses diluted with a lot of water and using it in place of a face wash. And, um, and it's actually kind of helped my skin. So I've been doing it for a couple months now, but you know, this is one of those times where, you know, that you're experimenting on yourself. I mean, my friend's not, she's not trying to sell me anything. She's just trying to share a tip that worked for her as well. And in my mind, I figure, you know, I've my skin, I've battled my skin for a long time. And I've tried lots of different things and I've tried lots of wacky things and this one doesn't seem any more wacky than the others. So it's kind of like a blend of the like caveman approach and, um, and uh, uh, like oil-based cleaner essentially. But you know, it seems to have worked. Would I tell everyone else that they should go out and do it? I I don't know that it would be right for everybody else. Um, But I think that's an example where, you know, science doesn't tell me that there's a right way to wash my face, per se. And so I feel like there's room for us to experiment and try things. But that was just a purely anecdotal. While we're condemning anecdotes, um, <laughs> allow us to provide you with <laughs>
1: <anecdotes>. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Ailea,
2: what were you saying? I was going to say, when I talk to people, um, two things. Oh, I've had to set a lot of boundaries. Um, as, because I have many, many friends who use and sell essential oils. Um, it was more popular a few years ago. I feel like it's kind of died down a little bit. Um, but but still, I, I have friends that use it, some like me and friends that use it for you just for everything, you know. Um, and I, I've had to set some boundaries with them about, you know, I will not take this internally. Please stop recommending this. Mm. This is not something I'm comfortable with. Um, and also I have uh, – We don't have time to go into it now, but I have some significant reservations with some of the big companies um, with their um, business practices, with their uh, the people in charge. And so I've had to set some boundaries about um, I I will be interested in taking that recipe that you are recommending for a sugar scrub or whatever. But I'm not comfortable buying from this this company because I don't agree with these practices. Um, And. Mm just kind of having to have a little bit awkward conversations, but I know that you're a part of that company, but I've done a lot of research or, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading up on this. And um, so I would say just honesty um, in these conversations. And uh, as part of the, the grace and truth is being honest with your boundaries and saying where you're comfortable and where you're not. And hopefully prayerfully, um, the people that you're talking to will be respectful of those boundaries.
1: I think that's a really helpful thing to keep in mind. Sorry, you were going to say something, Jessica?
0: Yes, and I was going to ask a question that yeah, this may end up being cut. Um, but uh, Ilya, I'm wondering when you you mentioned before that you went through a cancer scare. When you went through that, did you deal with people suggesting alternative treatments like essential oils? And again, oh. I can ask this question in a clean format if you feel comfortable answering it on air. I just didn't know if that would be a useful
2: thing. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I did. I definitely had people that um, recommended uh, essential oils or other supplements or, um, you know, other CAM treatments before and after. You know, some of it, I don't, I'm trying to remember if I had anybody actually offer me, offer to cure my cancer with oils. Um, But part of that is because by the time they they found it they it was removed very quickly um but definitely with the healing process there was there was a lot of well you know you could take this and it would help with this issue or um but so i more I, on the like care and comfort side yes
1: yeah i think those are all really good good things to keep in mind and i think too um you you alluded to this um ilia with talking about the practices that some of these companies are involved with, and there, there's a piece that I'll, I'll throw in the show notes from the New Yorker that follows the uh, the advent of some of these companies, and you can really see, regardless of whether at the end of the day you think that they they are offering an effective product, that the people involved in these companies are are no less fallen than anyone else, and there's some some weird and, and uh, unusual stuff that goes on, um, and so we we do want to be aware of those, those human limitations. Um, just as natural doesn't always mean healthy and good for you. Natural also doesn't always mean the company is uh, honorable and upright and everyone involved with it is, is altruistic in all of their motives. Um, and, uh, and I, I, uh, my, my husband is fond of saying basically the way he knows that essential oils don't work is that none of the pharmaceutical companies have tried to start selling them. They're clearly not worried about losing business. Um, and 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 I realize that some of it, OK, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lawyer hat on. If it's a naturally occurring substance, you wouldn't be able to patent it. But all you have to do is add one thing or distill it mm-hmm. one particular way and you could right. patent mm-hmm. that process. So you could have your big pharma version of super effective whatever oil. like they, they could do that in a heartbeat. They're not. And so to to, to his uh, to his mind, that is some evidence that both that they're not worried about losing business to something that, that is doing a better job than they are, and they're also not trying to get a piece of that pie. Now, I will say, I feel like it's only a matter of time before one of these oil companies gets bought out by some pharmaceutical company. And I'm sure that's <laughs> the case already, that some of the natural remedies are um, are owned by the same companies that are selling the the man-made remedies as well. Um, I don't know if it's specifically in, in the field of oils, but I'm sure there's some company that's like, we will sell you St. John's wort and we will sell sell you penicillin. Like, I'm sure there are are companies that are are happy to have a, a toe in, in, in sort of both of those pools.
2: Um, but, that yeah, it goes back think- a little bit to what we were talking about about medical conspiracy theories because the the oils people will say no, they're suppressing oils because their products are more expensive. And so I think that's another good point to like, as you're having these conversations is to kind of um, gently, um, try to steer away from those those conspiracy theories on either side. You know the conspiracy theories right. about oh these people are selling you snake oil to you know earn your money. Well, they may actually believe that that works. You know we're not going right. to assume um, malevolence on either side, um, but there is a lot of uh, consistent um, misinformation put out by the wellness industry against pharmaceutical companies, against medication, against scientific medical community, because that's the only way that people would turn to them, right? You know, um, so that's something to, to keep in mind in those conversations is to be gracious, but also to um, to, to stave off fear and to, to not let yourself or the people that you're talking to be ruled by um, these conspiracy theories of fear that, that are designed to provoke a reaction.
1: I think, too, that that highlights some of what makes it so difficult to make these decisions is that everybody, almost everybody, who gives you uh, information or perspective, they have a vested interest in the outcome. Uh, So yes, the, the scientific community arguably has a vested interest in preserving its place of respect. And the pharmaceutical companies want to still have you buy their medicines. But of course, doTERRA and Young Living and whoever else also want you to buy their products. And so I think it can can be hard to, to feel like what you want is someone who's a neutral arbiter to sort of come in and weigh everything impartially. And it's hard because at the end of the day, almost anyone who weighs in, somebody is going to attribute them to one camp or the other as someone who has a vested interest. One way or the other, um, and true. and that makes it really yeah. hard um, because, of course, all of Anything? the the scientific evidence is dismissed as just part of this big conspiracy. But then, all of the evidence that's not part of the mainstream scientific community is typically produced by the the, the non-mainstream. Like that's where it comes from, and so um, both sides can perhaps understandably be skeptical of what the other side produces.
0: I think it is really fascinating how both sides end up being skeptical of the other. Um, I also think it's, it's useful to point out that, you know, scientific studies are just very expensive. It's, it costs a lot to put them on and do them well. And so I don't think it's surprising, you know, that FDA doesn't require because they're not making health claims. So you're not required to actually put them through clinical trials. To be clear, I'm not advocating that. I think that's a good idea. I think people should be able to use essential oils for aromatherapy or other things without having to have them necessarily go through a, a lengthy process to prove that we know that they're, um, that they do what we think they can do. But I do think, you know, it's it's tricky because studies cost a lot of money. So you're more likely to see studies on something that has um, uh, actual, like, It'll make sense financially for you to invest in doing these studies to prove that it'll work. Um, and Alexis, I love your husband's comment about if if they really worked, then big pharmaceutical companies would jump on them because it reminds me of there's this joke about an old and a young economist walking along the street and the young economist says, "Ooh, there's a $20 bill on the ground. And the old economist says, Psh, no, it can't be. Someone would have already grabbed it by now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just think that's kind of funny. And, and somewhat relevant for our
1: conversation. Sure, sure. Um, well, other thoughts on essential oils, or should we go ahead and, and are we ready to switch gears and talk about vaccines?
2: Let's talk about vaccines.
1: Awesome. All right, Jessica, what do you have for us?
0: All right, well, let's go from one controversial topic to another. Yep. <laughs> so uh, in April 2017, a study was published titled Pilot Comparative Study on the Health of Vaccinated and Unvaccinated 6 6- to 12-year-old U.S. Children. So the study did an online survey of 415 mothers, that's 666 children total, and asked them about medical diagnoses that their children receive from a doctor. The study found that the unvaccinated children were more likely to have been diagnosed with chickenpox and pertussis, which is whooping cough. Um, But the vaccinated children were more likely to have been diagnosed with pneumonia, otitis media, so that's an ear infection, allergies, and NDDs. And NDD stands for a neurodevelopmental disorder. And the authors defined it as having one of the following. So a learning disability, ADHD, and autism or autism spectrum disorder. They also state that vaccination plus preterm birth increase the odds of an NDD sixfold so these are decently alarming findings and they also they conflict with the majority of scientific evidence that's already out there but there are really serious issues with the study so, Snopes has done a pretty detailed dissection of this paper, and we'll include that uh, in the show notes. So, I'll refer you to that for a very detailed rundown on issues, but I think it's worth revisiting some of the key points for thinking critically about science scientific papers, and hopefully we can kind of put the paper in perspective. So, first, let's talk about study design. So, this is an online survey of homeschooled parents in four states that was conducted through a homeschool association group. The authors also note that a number of homeschool mothers volunteer to assist and promote the study to their wider circles of homeschool contacts. Okay, right off the bat, I think there are a few things we should notice. First, it is a survey and those are tricky. You're depending on people's subjective recollection of events and the people who are willing to take the time to do the survey, they might not be the same as the general US population. They might be a little bit more interested in this topic than people who choose not to participate. Next, their study population, homeschool children, is markedly different than the general. US. population. Most important for this paper, other studies have shown that homeschool children tend to visit the doctor less often. And finally, you know certain moms became cheerleaders for the study and increased participation. So like, what's wrong with that, right? Don't you want more study participants? You know, wouldn't that increase the study's power? I mean, kind of. The trouble is it could have further skewed the sample by having more participants who are similarly motivated like the cheerleader moms. Finally, although 666 children seems like a lot, the study only had nine children with autism spectrum disorder. So the numerous articles claiming that the study showed a link between vaccines and autism, they're essentially depending on nine children and that's a very small sample size. So the researchers acknowledged that they went for a convenient sample rather than a truly representative sample, simply because they didn't have the capacity to do better. Like we've already discussed, studies are expensive, but they didn't do some of the things that you can do to be more clear-eyed about your convenience sample. So they didn't examine the response rates or evaluate what the non-respondent population looked like so that they could really know how different was their study population from the rest of the people that are kind of out there. So before the study has even gotten results, I think you've got some really legitimate issues with with the makeup of the study population. Next, proxies. So although this paper was trying to measure children's health, it wasn't actually measuring children's health, but medical diagnoses that the parent remembered having been given to that child. Okay, now that's a pretty convenient stand-in for health, but there's a problem. I mean, there's actually a couple problems, but we don't all have the same threshold for when you should take your child to the doctor. So I I know that you were talking about, you know, you don't always run your child to the doctor for antibiotics for every cold. And I think people are different in how they handle that. Um, But at the end of the day, if you don't go to the doctor, you won't receive a medical diagnosis. And like I just said, previous studies have shown that homeschool children tend to visit the doctor less often And in this study, that that finding was also borne out. So unvaccinated children were half as likely as vaccinated children to have had a sick visit in the previous year. But vaccinated and unvaccinated children utilized ER services at about the same rate. And also their overnight hospitalizations if you look at the margins of error, they're also not too far off. It was slightly higher for the vaccinated group, but not that much higher. So I, I'd be willing to say that it's almost within the margin of error. So are vaccinated children really more sick or do they simply have more contact with the medical community and are more likely to be diagnosed with things? Did the study actually measure health or just the utilization of the health system? Finally, The Snopes article makes a pretty compelling case against their claim of a six-fold increase in NDDs among preterm birth children. So the Snopes article dives into odds ratios and a lot of other stuff. I'm going to try and summarize it, but basically NDDs have already been associated with preterm birth. So this study has to somehow make the case that vaccination and not preterm birth is what's responsible for the increased risk of NDDs. But the study failed to make any of their work public in that regard, they simply say that after a quote quote second adjustment, they found that the association still held. The researchers acknowledge that their study is small and somewhat poorly constructed and they call for more research. But what I find troubling is that there really has been more research, lots and lots of research, large population-based studies examining everything from the number of antigens that a child is exposed to in vaccines, to thimerosal, to the timing of vaccines. And none of them have found statistically significant correlations between vaccines and autism or developmental delays. So based on the study, I find, based on the information we've kind of talked about already, I find this article to be less than compelling. And that's without even getting into discussing the article's funding source or the fact that it was published and then retracted and then published again in a paper where they actually charged money for it to be published. So before I kind of dive into a Christian perspective on this, um, do you guys have anything to add?
1: I, uh, I thought it was really interesting. One of the one of the pieces responding to this study also highlighted not only that homeschool children are less likely to go to the doctor, but that unvaccinated children might be less likely to go to the doctor because of the perception of um, pressure from the pediatrician to be vaccinated. Like if you're going to get flack every time you take your kids to the doctor because you haven't been vaccinating them, that can be a deterrent on you going when all other things being equal, you might. And I thought that was a really good point of a a related variable that could be affecting the outcome. Um, So then, yeah, you're not going to get a diagnosis if you just wait it out and, you know, wait till your kid gets better. Um, And so, yeah, just just specifically that correlation and that connection between an unvaccinated child and the the likelihood of going to the doctor for an unrelated illness.
0: Mm -hmm. I also think that, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but there are times when you hit that point, you know, maybe your kid has kind of had a cruddy nose and a cough and just seems somewhat miserable and has been hanging on for a long time. And you think, okay, maybe I should take him to the doctor. But you wait a little bit longer and they do actually, they, they come through okay. And so, but had you taken them to the doctor, they probably would have been diagnosed with a mild ear infection. But that ear infection probably would have resolved on its own. I mean, I think research has recently shown that sometimes it is appropriate to wait it out and not provide antibiotics um, until it's kind of gone on a little farther or if there are other factors involved. So I, I just wanted to mention that because I think... One temptation is to say, oh, well, you know, if you're diagnosed with an ear infection, that must mean that you were really sick and your doctor, your parent took you to the doctor, when it's entirely possible that children could have read these things out at home, Alexis, like you said, because you're going to catch flack when you go to the doctor, Um, and and the parents would just kind of say like, yeah, my kid was sick, but everything's okay now. And that wouldn't be captured in this data.
1: Right. Well, and yeah, like what you're saying. So you've got on one end people who might otherwise take their kid to the doctor, but don't because of social uh, reasons like concern over pressure to vaccinate or, or other concerns. But you've also got like if you are a parent who is a hypochondriac. I guarantee you, you have vaccinated your child. And so the parent who's taking their kids to the doctor at the drop of a hat is the parent who vaccinated their child. So already you've got, you're going to have data that's going to skew if you get a diagnosis, even half the time, but you're the parent who takes them to the doctor at the drop of a hat. Like Those things are going to travel together. There's going to be a connection with those variables that's not necessarily going to, um, yeah, to be reflected accurately in the results.
0: Yeah. And I also think that, you know, I I do think that this study actually measured um, trust in the health community, perhaps more than risks that vaccines might pose. Because if you are the parent that is not vaccinating your child, it seems, and I don't have any data to support this, so don't hold me to it, but it seems like you might also be the parent that would, that this may not be your trusted resource for health information for every little thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a parent who is vaccinating, You know that probably is who you go see if your child's still winning the bed. Whereas perhaps another parent turns to another resource. Right.
2: As a teacher, I noticed something completely different when I was reading the study, and that was that these kids are all homeschooled, so they. They're not going to be a good representation of NDDs in the community at large anyway because they don't have a professional watching them every single day who's going to refer them for a diagnosis, right? Um, so as a teacher, we are trained to look for red flags. We cannot make a diagnosis um, about you know ADHD or autism or anything like that, but we have red flags that we are trained to look for and then refer to a physician for a diagnosis. If they're homeschooled, number one, they may not be exhibiting a lot of that because... They may be allowed to stand on their head while they do their math facts, you know, where because they can't sit still. Um, whereas in a class full of thirty kids, they would not be allowed to. And you know, having ADD would be more of an issue. So the mom might not even notice. You know, she may it may not be something that comes up. Um, things like you know, autism spectrum disorder. That that if you don't have a good idea of what um, neurotypical development timeline is you're not going to know the red flags to look for developmentally. So it may be much longer. It it may take a lot longer um, before you are going to notice. You may notice and decide it's not a big issue. It's just their quirks. It's not, you may not know the things to pick up on like a teacher who has been trained um, in, in what to look for. So to me, you know, assessing the diagnoses of a group of homeschoolers is automatically going to have flaws regardless of anything else about the study because you're, you would have to take them all in and have them evaluated, and then from that evaluation, produce you know the results as far as their you know neurotypical state state or otherwise. Um, and also, as homeschoolers, they're almost almost always going to have a lower income. That's going to affect their access and um, frequency mm. of medical care as well, uh, because most homeschoolers are single income, right? Um, and a lot of times they're um bigger families and so they're going to have even you know sh- more stretched uh, resources and so you know it's just those those two factors you know at being outside of the the school system whether it's a private school or public school or Montessori school or whatever you know um, being outside of a school system environment and then also the the income level um, those two things are going to affect the rates of diagnoses the rates of you know uh, well visits and sick visits and um, even without accounting for any of the other things.
1: Also, true story. If I have six kids, it's going to take a lot for me to want to take all six of them to go wait in the doctor's office and okay, right. and yeah. probably because, get you know, sick. Going back to the doctor. Yeah, he's
2: exactly. He's doctor.
1: Like it's not like the other five are in school and you can just take one. You got all of them, and of course, the doctor's yeah. office is where all the sick people are. And so, not only yeah. are you dealing with you know however many kids at the doctor, but now there's also the potential to hang around and get something else. So there's a lot of factors that could deter people from from getting. Um, getting seen by a doctor under those circumstances.
0: Ilya, I think you made a excellent point that uh, homeschool children are not being, you know, when you are a parent, you see just a few children, and it is easy to kind of accommodate your child's quirks. Whereas if you push them into a classroom, you're going to have a trained professional that's looking at them and knows what development should look like and can recognize those red flags. And you're not going to have that um, in a homeschool setting. So, yeah, I think when you're looking at this article, Like the homeschool, when you have such a narrow selection of um, participants, it really I don't think it's accurate in the title to say that it's a it's a pilot study of U.S. children. I mean, yes, these are children in the U.S., but they're a very specific subset of U.S. children. So anybody have anything else to kind of add?
1: I think we're ready for the next uh, next piece.
0: Okay. So Texas pediatrician Justin Smith wrote an article for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission titled Three Reasons Christians Should Vaccinate with Confidence. So first, uh, he says that Christians should vaccinate because science confirms the effectiveness and safety of vaccinations. And he details how effective vaccines are at reducing deaths from diseases, and they are. He provides the example of measles, where 400 to 500 children a year used to die in the U.S. from measles. 48,000 were hospitalized and 4,000 developed encephalitis. And all of these diseases are still prevalent abroad. So it is still actually a present risk if you are traveling outside. Of our country. He also says that additive ingredients uh, in the vaccines are not quote unquote toxins. They are chemicals that are found in nature. Your child will get more mercury from a tuna fish sandwich, more aluminum from breast milk and formula, and more formaldehyde from a pear than they will receive from vaccinations. If you want more information on additives within vaccines, I'll include an article he links to in the show notes that kind of walks through not just additives, but a lot of other things. He also notes that many Christians have embraced a skepticism of science, but he cautions that being skeptical does not mean disregarding information. So he references a study of 1.2 million children in Australia that showed no association with autism for vaccination, MMR, thimerosal, or mercury. And he ends it by saying, we should weigh the evidence in light of a Christian worldview, but we cannot ignore overwhelming scientific consensus in favor of anecdote and theory. So that's his first point. His second one, Christians should vaccinate because we love our neighbors. The science behind herd immunity is strong and it's necessary because not everyone can be vaccinated and vaccines aren't always perfect. So using measles as an example, the rate of infection for an unvaccinated child with measles is 90%, while an immunized child's rate of infection is almost zero, but it's not zero, which is important. As he puts it, in an outbreak, the trail of of unvaccinated infected children and adults creates a domino effect of exposures and infections that becomes difficult to contain. He also notes that people don't always follow instructions to quarantine, which I think is really interesting and perhaps indicative of the luxury that we have, that most of the diseases that we catch don't kill as many people. And so we go out and about oftentimes with a cold. And when you have something like measles or rubella, If you truly follow quarantine, you're stuck in your house for a really long time because it takes a while for the infection to run its course and for your child to stop shedding virus. So, and many of these diseases are contagious before you're even symptomatic, and many early symptoms mimic common viruses. So in the case of measles, unvaccinated exposed children, they're likely to spread the disease before anybody even knows they have it. He links to an article that, uses an analogy i found helpful so vaccines are kind of like raincoats while herd immunity is kind of like an umbrella so you might still get a little bit wet when you wear a raincoat but if you wear a raincoat while standing under an umbrella you're good to go plus raincoats are not for babies i don't think i've ever seen a baby effectively wear a raincoat umbrellas are for babies and i just thought that was kind of helpful for explaining why it's not sufficient to say well, your child's vaccinated, so why do you care if mine isn't? So he ends by saying that Christians should remember that we are our brother's keeper, and choosing not to vaccinate and just hiding in the herd doesn't work and puts others unnecessarily at risk. I would add um, that we have a very limited number of people that can be unvaccinated and still let us keep solid herd immunity that protects us all, and we tend to reserve those kind of unvaccinated, but still protected against disease seats for those who are very young, medically immunocompromised, and allergic to ingredients and vaccines. By not vaccinating your child, you are taking one of those seats, and if too many people do that, we lose the ability to protect the most vulnerable in our community. So his third point, uh, finally, he argues that Christians should vaccinate because we don't give in to fear-mongering. So he acknowledges that this could be said of both sides because there are scary stories on both sides, but he makes the distinction that telling the story of a child who suffered or died as the result of an infectious disease is actually supported by the scientific literature, whereas many scary stories about vaccines are anecdotal and no studies have linked those adverse events to vaccines. You know, obviously, given my background, I'm going to be a big fan of preventing deadly diseases, and I think his first two points are very, very solid, Um, though I did... I wrestled a little bit with the third point, and I have struggled to kind of put my finger on why that is. I think part of it is just because I'd be cautious in calling it fear-mongering, because it almost feels like we're assigning a motive or assuming that it's not well-intentioned. And I worry that that could isolate a scared parent rather than connecting them with and guiding them through the evidence that's available um, to us. So I I do think there's value in exercising thoughtful skepticism in the way that we care for our bodies because humans aren't perfect and our knowledge is limited, but we should make sure that we are willing to update our perspectives when the evidence becomes compelling. Um, So I've got a few more thoughts, but I want to just open it up to you ladies and hear your thoughts. One thing that I keep thinking of is that it's
2: really important to take a long look at our cost-benefit analysis when we're talking about vaccines if if you are willing to say you know if if somebody really believes that vaccines cause autism and therefore i will not vaccinate my children what you're saying is you would rather your child not have autism than get a potentially deadly vaccine and i I think if you think about that for a minute that's actually not even the best scenario, even if they cause autism, which they, we have proven, you know, scientifically in many, many states that they don't. But even if you believe that, it doesn't really make sense that you think that risking your child's life is worth them having a neurological, you know, atypical um, uh, um, issue. Um yeah, you know, I, have, I have loved ones that have autism and I love them dearly. And that's part of what makes them special and interesting. And, you know, I, I have you know, friends that have um, down syndrome and, you know, I, I would no more say, well, I'd rather them, you know, potentially risk a a disease and get down syndrome. When you think Mm -hmm. of it like that, it becomes uh, almost um, harmful to the, the autism spectrum community to, to pit them against life and death. Like I'd, I'd rather risk their life than, than let them have this disorder. Now, like I said, we've established that there is no link that has ever been proven scientifically between, vaccines and autism, but even if there were, is it worth risking their life just so they wouldn't have that, you know?
0: Because what you're saying is that there is intrinsic value in their humanity and their existence. Absolutely. And that even though they are neuroatypical, that they still are contributing members of our society and that we are better for having them. Absolutely. And just to be clear, we are not saying that there is any link.
2: Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. I'm just saying that if you're going you're down fine. that path, then yeah, yeah. you're still in error. Even if you right. accept that that as true, which it is scientifically not, even if you do, that is still not a logical conclusion either
0: way. And just to take a step back, I think one thing that you're saying, I find reassuring as um, as a parent of boys, because boys are more likely to have um, autism spectrum than girls, that you know, basically what you're saying is like, Dear listener, deal kindly with what the Lord may hand to you. It is okay if your child yes. has something that that there is still good to be had in that. And um, I actually listened to a fantastic podcast. Uh, of it was Tyler Cowan, and he was interviewing um, a, a well known autism researcher who actually has autism herself. And she was kind of pointing out the ways that autistics are, and I don't think that's the correct term, so please forgive me for that, but those who are on the autism spectrum um, actually their brains function differently and they actually have advantages in some area, yes. areas, but they are often treated as though they are just, you know, a kind of a scourge something to be eradicated or fixed when in fact she's really arguing for their distinct humanity and for their rights as as distinct unique individuals that bring something to our community and our society so i feel exactly. like that's a great point
2: yeah we don't we don't appreciate and love them in spite of this, you know, this thing about them, we, we appreciate and love them for who they are as a whole with all of the things that come with them. Just like I want somebody to, you know, love everything about me, not just the perfect parts. Yeah.
1: Well, and it makes me wonder too. So if, if we think of the, I know it's not necessarily always true, but if, if the, some of the vaccine skepticism tends to correlate with people who are identify as Christians okay uh and 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 i think you you are right there there does seem to be this uncurrent undercurrent of uh the worst thing i can imagine for my child is that they would develop an, an autism spectrum disorder or beyond the spectrum um and and i feel like that that is that same mentality that we see in the world of eradicating disability by eradicating persons with disability
0: um yes. and that
1: same idea of uh, I don't just want a child. I want a child who is who is not in, in any way encumbered by any of these challenges. And if I had to choose, I would rather have no child at all
0: mm-hmm. than
1: it be than to to bring to term a child with disi- with uh, with say um, a Down syndrome. Right where we have this this trend, and and we in the church say no people have value, and we do not want to be getting to the point where we only have value to the extent that we have no disabilities. Um, but then it it seems like this maybe is an area where, where parts of the church don't realize that the same thing that they are rejecting on the one hand, they may be endorsing on the other
2: by, mm-hmm. by
1: embracing this idea that, yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, when pushed, you know, are you saying you would rather your child die... Then, then be neuroatypical. Um, and, and do we think that that is reflective of what we believe about the image of God, uh, reflected in mankind and our obligation to love the least of these and the way that the Lord has loved us in our brokenness and our need and, and all of these things that it seems like that could very much be, um, that, that poison. I think, I think it is a poison in the culture. Um, sort of seeping into the church, or maybe it's just a poison in the human heart and it's just popping up both places. Um, but it seems like it's that same argument, right? It's that same argument, that same, you know, whether you're having a selective abortion, um, you know, because of, of, uh, you know, non, non terminal defects that are just gonna be difficult, um, and, and maybe make things difficult for you, the parent and for the child, um, is, is that, is that that different than than having the same attitude? And and I realize it's a little bit different because um, the risks are different, and 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 maybe they're saying, well, the one I'm not going to vaccinate against is one of the diseases that's less you know, mm-hmm. less deadly, like I'll get the polio vaccine, but maybe I won't get, you know, the chicken pox vaccine or whatever. So I understand that they're not exactly the same, but I think you've hit on a really good point where we have to watch against some of the culture's attitudes and some of the world, the sinful world. I don't mean in the sense that like the church is always right, and the culture is always wrong, but the, the, that sinful thinking can affect us in ways we don't necessarily expect.
0: And beyond just uh, fearing that you might have you know, so I'll, maybe I should back up for a second. The folks that I've spoken to who are nervous about vaccines, I would say most of them are not really nervous about an autism connection. Usually it is some other can't quite put your finger on it, vaguely uncomfortable Maybe worried about immune response. Maybe worried about autoimmune. It's it's actually pretty diverse, and that's where I go back to like asking questions is really valuable because sometimes the thing that they're worried about is quite specific and and quirky and different. And so, um, but Alexis, one of the things I think it's really good for us to just kind of talk about and think about and question ourselves is, you know, when we're thinking about these risks. We want to be good stewards of our children, but everything has risks. Mm-hmm. And the tricky thing is we do not see these infectious diseases and the risks that they would pose to our child because everybody else is vaccinated. So you just don't see them, but they are still out there. And so I think it becomes challenging for a parent to know how to weigh, um, particularly as a Christian parent, how to kind of weigh those various risks risks, whether they are the genuine risk that if you don't vaccinate your child um, against, let's say, Hib, Haemophilus, influenza B, or some other vaccines, you could have an increased risk of meningitis or an increased risk of various other things. Um, It's just hard, I think, for parents to hold the unknown risk that may be kind of amorphous and honestly, very fear-laden, where it's just like, I don't know what the risk could be, but I feel like there could be some risk to weigh that against the still kind of intangible risk of, well, my child could catch an infection and it could have negative consequences for them. But I don't see any of those infections out there today. And I think that's just tough for a parent to weigh. And as a Christian, I think we need to remind ourselves that the Lord is in control. And yes, Mm -hmm. you should be wise and good stewards. But, you know, sometimes you have to make the best call with the data that's available and be a good steward of the data that you already have and just rest in God's sovereignty.
1: I think that's all really, really helpful. And I think, too, it matters that, like, you you so so vac- vaccinating your child is an actual active action like it's it's not a passive yeah. thing that you endure like you actually have to commit an action or or agree to have the doctor commit the action it's not an an omission and i think that does mm-hmm. change it a little bit like it's not just sort of well i'm not sure so i'll do no, like i'm not sure so oh, i'll dear. do nothing is i don't vaccinate my child like that's where you end up with if you sort of are unwilling to to make a decision that's the decision that you make um and and then too there's the fact that it feels different for you to be the one inflicting the perceived harm mm-hmm. on your child as opposed to yeah. they they mm-hmm. caught whatever it was out in the world. I feel bad, but I did not in, like I did not go and give them to th- that to them on purpose. Like it. it right. th- so So that affects, I think, our weight of the risks, because one of them requires an action by us and an action that we will always know we took. Um, And so if there is any harm, like, and I I remember feeling that, like, when when I would decide whether to vaccinate my kids, and I'm someone who never, never really considered not vaccinating them. But the stories that anecdotal stuff that I know is not the way to make a decision was floating around in the back of my head and you're thinking about like how how would i feel knowing that i did i did this to him is essentially how you feel um yep. and again saying that i do not think that 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 any of those things have have been shown to happen so i don't think i was doing anything to my child other than protecting him um but i could feel that i could feel why that would be different than just yeah do nothing and take your chances or at least know that it wasn't you that, that actively did. I mean, obviously you can say, well, I, if only I had, had vaccinated them. So there's still an action and you can certainly find a way to feel guilty. Because, of course, as Ailea said uh, in our previous episode, like the, the weight of this is tremendous, uh, particularly on women. Um, but but it does feel different to say, doctor, I want you to stick a needle in my child if you have any concern that that could be causing them harm. Like it just it feels fundamentally different.
0: Yeah. And maybe it's worth just taking a moment and stepping back and saying, wow, we're putting a whole lot of weight on ourselves with mm-hmm. these things. And perhaps maybe we need to take a deep breath and, you know, trust a little bit more. I don't want to say that you shouldn't think well about these decisions, but just when you talked about women putting this weight on themselves, that they have to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, I did have one, uh, you know, if, If folks are not vaccinating out of developmental concerns, I get worried when those conversations are never revisited, because I think it is easy for people to see their children make it out of toddlerhood, babyhood, you know, even young kids, and then to just kind of forget. But their risks are still present, and I would argue that they actually become more problematic as your child gets older, so some of these diseases are actually nastier to catch when you're an adult and because your child probably wasn't exposed to them as a child because no one else had them they would be more likely to catch them as an adult if they travel abroad or if they go on a church mission trip or you know even just being in an airport unfortunately or in or in high traffic areas so um if you're going to disney or something like that you're you're going to be at higher risk of being around them and if you forget and your child's not vaccinated, um, that can actually be very painful. And I know, like Alexis, what you're saying, getting that vaccine where you're doing something to your child, it is a scary thing. I think it is easy to forget that if you don't do that thing to your child, even when they're older, that them catching the disease, it's really unpleasant and can be quite nasty um, and problematic. Um, I also think that unvaccinated parents need to be really, really aware of their surroundings. So their children's protection depends. And this goes for people who are opting not to vaccinate out of concerns and for those who simply cannot be uh, vaccinated, Like their child's protection depends largely on the level of vaccination in the community and, and a little bit of straight up luck. So you should know your local vaccination rates. And if you're in a big pocket of unvaccinated people, you're going to be at greater risk. And you should also know when you're going to go into a setting where your kid's more likely to be exposed. Disney is a big one. Amusement parks, airports, international travel, you know, large city She'd also know that like you could take your kid. your kid could contract one of these and you don't even remember doing anything super risky. Um, Just takes one individual who's traveling from abroad with a mild or subclinical case. Um, And then doctors really don't know what they're looking at with these anymore. A lot of them have never seen a case of measles or rubella. And so they may not really know kind of how to treat your child. Like they'll be reading textbooks. (laughs) Uh They'll walk out of your room very nervous. And go read some textbooks and try to figure out like, or they'll try to find like the one doctor that has actually seen cases of this. So I think a lot of people have um, kind of reassured themselves that because modern medicine is so good, their children would fare better with these diseases. I think modern medicine is getting really good at treating things like cancer and at dealing with um, heart disease, but we do not have a ton of experience with working with vaccine preventable diseases. So don't think that they're going to, like, it won't be a well-oiled machine necessarily if you walk into the ER and your child has one of these. It it may take a little bit of work to figure it out. Um, So you guys anything to say on that? And I've got one more final point, I promise.
1: I I think that's a really good point, but yeah, go for it.
0: Okay, so Finally, I think saying that vaccines are safe and effective is not to say that there isn't room for adding to our knowledge or improving um, our understandings or that our understandings might change. So I think there are lots of areas where we could use improved data around vaccines. Like for example, we need a better flu vaccine, preferably a universal vaccine that won't fall down on the job when the virus inevitably mutates. But for now, some protection is better than none Uh, And then there are lots of things that we just don't know, and there are some mysteries left to be unraveled. So there's a really fascinating theory called, and I, I love the name of this for a Christian podcast, it's kind of funny, it's called Original Antigenic Sin, which suggests that certain diseases, like influenza and dengue, um, for, for those diseases, the first strain that we're exposed to dictates how our immune systems will respond to future mutated strains, which could help explain why some years the vaccine seems like an okay match, but it doesn't protect some segments of the population as well as others. So it's just kind of a fascinating um, rethinking of what our understanding of uh, immunology of vaccines is and what it looks like. So, but basically overall, As Christians, I think we should acknowledge that the world is complicated and fallen, but we make the best, most responsible decisions that we can for ourselves and our communities with the information that's available. And then we rest in God's sovereignty. And just as a final note, I think it's really key to have a health provider with whom you have good rapport. So even if you are skeptical about medicine or vaccines, or if you're not, and you are just wholehearted, happy to go in. You're the hypochondriac who takes their child in all the time. I think it's really valuable to have someone who you can ask honest questions of and understand their answers. Um, And then I also think it's really good for lots of different people who have different perspectives on these things to have conversations about them and practice being civil and loving each other well in the way that we have our conversations. So with that, I will turn it back to the two of y'all to see if you have any additional thoughts.
1: I don't. Uh, Ailea, if you have, uh, have anything, go ahead and chime in. Otherwise, we'll move on to passing on.
2: Let's go to passing on.
1: Awesome. Okay, so this is the, the portion of the podcast where we make recommendations to you, the listener, for further reading or listening or uh, other information that, that you might appreciate. So um, Ailea, why don't you go ahead and give us your recommendation first?
2: Okay. Yeah, I definitely recommend um, the podcast and the article that I mentioned earlier about essential oils. Those will be in the show notes. Um, But I also wanted to recommend some further reading about um, safe, effective uses of essential oils. Women's Day actually ran an article a few years back that has really good basic information about the best ways to use them safely. um, And it covers kind of all the basic points that I usually look for when I look for Um, best practice with essential oils. So um, I'll put that in the show notes. And then Time Magazine recently, very recently, just published an article uh, about the safety of essential oils, looking specifically at the effect they have on hormone production, um, especially in young boys. That's a a newer concern that has been raised. Um, So that's good information to keep in mind as well. And I'll put that link on there too.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Jessica, what do you have for us?
0: Sure. So I will include in the show notes um, the links that were uh, included in Dr. Smith's article. I think there's some good information in there if there are parents out there who are dealing with um, vaccination questions right now. Um, I would also recommend the Science Versus podcast on vaccines. I think it's a very accessible, um, easy listen that does a good job, a good literature review. So they kind of run through all the different Uh, Questions that you might have or potential side effects or risks or things like that. So I think that's a very good lesson. And then my last one would be actually something that I um, mentioned at the very beginning of the first one of our podcasts. And that is Emily Oster. Uh, She has a book called Expecting Better, but if you're not in the mood to listen to an entire book, you can listen to an Econ Talk podcast by Russ Roberts, and you just look up Emily Oster. Uh, I'll include it in the show notes as well, but it's a really fascinating look at um, kind of how we approach pregnancy and the medical, um, the scientific literature or lack thereof that is beneath some of the claims and um, recommendations during pregnancy. So it's a pretty interesting read or listen.
1: Uh, excellent recommendations, all. Thank you. I actually am going to change my recommendation based on our conversations. I'm going to recommend Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, because part of our discussion, I think, has been the difficulty of processing information in an entertainment-based culture uh, and the difficulty of, of you know understanding what the media is for and especially the media uh as it exists now, right? The television, the internet media, um, that we're not in the habit of, of going and looking at studies, right? We're looking at the, the, the short version on the CNN website. Um, and, and so, yeah, so it's, it's a good discussion that I think helps, helps you to be aware of the way your, your mind is affected by the actual media. And I don't just mean like what they're saying, but the actual form that it takes, the fact that we use uh, visual media, video media, um, uh, that we're not, you know, waiting for the next volume of a book to come out so we can find out information, and we're not sitting through the Lincoln Douglas debates in order to make uh, an informed political decision. So uh, I'll go ahead and put that that link in there, but that just I think is helpful for for framing the way we think about these things, and that our minds are are looking at things differently and processing information differently because of uh, the the culture and climate that we're in. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Ilea Danner-Grubbs and Jessica Harden, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss white Christian women and Black Lives Matter.
2: Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.